Now, I do want to apologize right off the bat here. I am well aware, as my friend Matt Scott likes to say, that a sports metaphor is the lowest form of metaphor. So take this following story not as a metaphor, but as an example of a contemporary uh, cultural occurrence that gives us an interesting parallel to the gospel story. I am, and have always been, a Seattle sports fan. For those of you that don't fully know what that means, it means that for most of my life, I have been exiled from the promised land. It means that even when I have had the fortune to return from exile, the shadow of the empire still looms over my life. I've been cast out of the joy of the championships. I've not seen World Series wins. I've not even seen World Series games. I've heard a rumor that there once may have been a golden age, that once maybe there was an NBA championship from the Supersonics, but that was before I was born. The Sonics don't even exist anymore. I have seen one Super Bowl victory, but we all know that that one Super Bowl victory was just a setup for the emotional tragedy of the next year, when rather than hand the ball off to a Seattle savior, we threw an interception. All of my life, I have been under the thumb of the evil empires of the sports leagues, teams that call themselves such imperial names as Patriots and Yankees, Spurs, oh, sorry, Thunder, Oklahoma Thunder. This relevant and contemporary cultural story is about the Seattle Savior. In the middle of a terrible 2010 season, the Seattle Seahawks traded a couple of low-round draft picks for one Marshawn Lynch, also known as Beast Mode. This trade did not resurrect the season. The Seahawks limped to the finish line with a record of seven wins and nine losses, which ended up being good enough for first place in the worst division that the NFL had ever seen. They became the first team ever with a negative record to make it to the playoffs. In the first round, Seattle would play the New Orleans Saints, defending Super Bowl champions, 11-5 record. Every facet of the game, this team had a better team than my Seattle Seahawks. The Saints should have rolled the Seahawks. But the game surprisingly went back and forth. Towards the end, though, it did appear that Seattle was running out of gas. They were barely grasping on to a four-point lead with about four and a half minutes to go. They had the ball, but the last several times they had the ball, the drive stalled quickly. They ended flat, and this drive started in the same way, a stuffed run right up the middle. But remember, this story is about a savior. On the next down, second and 10, the ball was snapped with about three and a half minutes to go, 67 yards away from the end zone. Marshawn Lynch received that handoff. He was met at a, by a defender right at the line of scrimmage. It looked like he would get a yard or two out of it, but beast mode was just getting started. He broke that tackle. He split two defenders. He broke another tackle, and the crowd erupted. Lynch changed direction, already having gained enough for the first down, and he got some more. 
He changed directions again. He split two more defenders and he broke two more tackles and he gave the world's most powerful stiff arm to the opposing safety, throwing him about 10 yards down the field. The crowd grew even louder. Lynch broke yet one more tackle and then launched himself backwards into the end zone, surrounded by Team Hawks, teammates, Seahawks, Team Hawks, uh, to seal the victory from Seattle for Seattle. It was glorious. After the game, the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network reported that each time the crowd erupted, each broken tackle, and especially when Marshawn Lynch crossed the goal line, they had actually recorded significant seismic activity. <laughs> Marshawn Lynch's earth-shaking run, now known as the Beastquake, caused the city of Seattle to tremble. The whole city was shaken. Just as that run gave long-awaited joy and hope to this whole stadium of people, it even gave joy and hope to a, a fan sitting here in San Antonio. Unfortunately, while Lynch is a legend, he is not divine. The Seahawks lost their next game. Now on the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the people that surrounded him, the people that were shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana, save us. The people even that were confused by who this man on a donkey was. All of these people knew a history of exile. An exile that continued even though they were back in their own land. Even though they were back in Jerusalem, they were still under occupation. The city of Jerusalem has a long history. It had been captured by King David about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. Jerusalem is pronounced Yerushalom. It means the city of peace. Under King David, the people of Israel organized politically around this city of peace, with this city of peace being their capital. And from this city of peace, they enjoyed military victory after military victory. Their prosperity grew. Their strength grew. Their legend grew. Though this golden age would not last for them, the people of Israel would for centuries remember this time. And they would long to return to it. They would await a son of David to return and restore Jerusalem to its former place of strength and freedom. The literal son of David, David's son Solomon, next on the throne, was not quite as wise as his legend would indicate. We all remember the legend that exemplifies this wisdom. To put it politely, Solomon once ordered a baby to be divided to determine who the real mother was. This legend may display some sort of wisdom, but it's also a tongue-in-cheek criticism. Solomon's inability to maintain the safety of his child, to maintain the safety of his people, would cause their nation to be torn in two. The subsequent kings of Judah, still in Jerusalem, 
caused the kingdom to descend further and further into the depths of injustice and unrighteousness. Jerusalem became a haven, a haven for a few wealthy royal and priestly families to hoard the power and the fortune. The prophet Micah, who existed, who spoke in about the 700s before Christ, asked God, what is Jacob's transgression? What is the sin of Judah? The response that Micah got was that the sin of Israel, the sin of Judah, was Jerusalem. This city of peace had gotten so bad that the city itself was identified with sin. This decline would eventually result in full destruction. Babylon captured the city. They tore the temple to the ground. They sent Judah into exile. That golden age under the days of David was just a fading memory. 400 years after David first took that city. But the God of Israel is always faithful to the people of Israel. Even if the kings are not. 50 50 years later, a contingent of exiles were allowed by their new emperor to return to Jerusalem. They were allowed to begin to rebuild the temple. Among those that returned was a prophet whose name was Zechariah. And Zechariah resurrected the hope. Resurrected the memory of the golden age. Zechariah declared something that should sound familiar to us as we've already heard some of these words quoted by Matthew. Rejoice, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, daughter Jerusalem. Your king will come to you. He is righteous and he is victorious. He is humble. He's riding on a donkey. He's on riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse for Jerusalem. The bow used in battle will be cut off. And this king will speak peace to the nations. Unfortunately, even with this new hope, new hope of return from exile, the shadow of the empire still hung over this nation. Though home, they were still not in control. They lived under the Persians first, and then the Greeks, and then the Ptolemies, and then the Seleucids, and then the Romans. The list is long, and the names of these empires never quite describe the pain that they cause. By the time that Jesus entered into this city of peace, its history was one of war and oppression. Sometimes Jerusalem was the victim, but sometimes Jerusalem was the perpetrator. Marcus Borg and John Dominic Croson say about Jerusalem in this time that it is the city of God and the faithless city. It is the city of hope and the city of oppression, the city of joy and the city of pain. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the city and the people were under Rome. The Romans had installed Pontius Pilate as the governor. 
They'd even usurped authority over the temple. The high priest and the temple authorities were appointed, appointed by Rome, appointed from families of Roman sympathizers. These priests then were tasked with maintaining civil order and the imperial taxation system. The temple itself became the means of the humiliation of her people. Jesus entered that Jerusalem. On that first Palm Sunday, to attend the festival of Passover. And Passover is a festival that celebrates the liberation of a, of a nation, a nation coming out of the oppression of another empire. Jesus went into that Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey, not only fulfilling these words of Zechariah, but imitating several royal and prophetic finger, figures. Solomon was coronated on a donkey. Another king, Yehu, was coronated on a donkey. Even Moses, when he returned to Egypt to set the people free, did so on a donkey. Jesus led into Jerusalem on that day a crowd of peasants that had accompanied him from Galilee, that had accompanied him to come and hear the story of liberation. This crowd laid out their cloaks and they threw their palm fronds, which are all symbols of victory. And the crowd shouted, Son of David, Son of David, Hoshana, save us! Matthew says that when Jesus came into the city, when Jesus came into the city of peace, the whole city was in turmoil. It was stirred up in some translations. The Greek word that Matthew uses here for turmoil is the same word from which we get the word seismic. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, it was a seismic event. The whole city was shaken. The king had arrived, a humble king, a son of David, who rode a donkey all the way to that temple, all the way to that center of imperial taxation and puppet leadership, and he threw out the temporary tenants. And even the children of the city at this point begin to join the cry, Hoshana, save us. This is how Jesus begins what we now call the Holy Week. This is a direct claim to kingship and a kingdom of peace. A direct shot at the imposters that thought that they held the power. This scene has been called by some to be choreographed street theater. This is a scene of protest, a scene where people that have been violently humiliated for hundreds of years are crying out for someone to save them. This is a cry for justice in the face of forced poverty, poverty and violence. Borg and Croson describe this event in the Holy Week with these words. Jesus' procession deliberately countered the norm for the city. It embodied an alternative vision the kingdom of God. This contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Rome is central to the story of Jesus. This confrontation between these two kingdoms continues through this last week of Jesus' life. 
As we all know, the week ends with Jesus' execution by the powers who ruled the world. As this holy week continues, as we mentioned, we will continue to tell this story. On Thursday night, we'll start by reliving and reenacting the story of the Exodus with our own choreographed dinner theater. Following that, at our Maundy Thursday service, we'll celebrate the means by which Jesus wins this confrontation and how he calls us to participate in it. On Good Friday, we will hear and we will see a portrayal of the passion, the suffering, and the death of Jesus. And on Sunday, we will celebrate resurrection. But all of that starts here. In this moment where a humble king confronted the powers that be. Consider this. There were a few different crowds on that day. There were those in the city who wondered who this man was, what he was doing on a donkey, and why the city shook at his appearance. There were those that followed the son of David who knew at least a little bit about who he was and what he was coming to do. There were priests there were legal experts under the employ of the empire who just wanted to maintain law and order. There were disciples called to prepare the way for this scene. There were Roman authorities preparing for the swell of this festival of liberation. Perhaps even Pontius Pilate felt the earth shake. And there were children. There were children riding on a wave of enthusiasm, seeing something and somebody new and exciting and hoping that this person could save them. Now, if you're confident, you might be thinking you know which of these crowds you would have been in. If you're honest, you might just be wondering. If you're like me, you're probably thinking about people that you know and assigning them to a crowd. But here's the thing. Jesus came into the city of peace. He came into the cries of Hoshana, and he caused the earth to tremble, and then he did it all to offer peace. He did this to offer shalom to every single one of them, to offer the salvation, to save each and every person in those crowds, even if it came at the price of death. As Paul explains of this, Christ came so that all will be given grace. And so as we enter this holy week, may we be those who welcome this humble king, and may we be those who welcome peace. May we cry out for salvation, and may we participate in it. May we be those who extend this salvation that we have received to all the people around us, whatever crowd we may find them in. And may we enter this week eager, eager to relive and to reenact and even relearn what it is to follow this Jesus to the cross. In the name of the God that shakes the earth.
and the Christ who confronts power with humility and the Spirit who cries out within us. Amen.